1 Corinthians 10, so uh, we do this once a month with communion, and we usually try to look at a different passage of Scripture. We want to remember just a few things about communion. Um, communion is a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The wafer is a, is, a, is a reminder, the Bible says, of the body of Christ, that he died in our place uh, as a substitute for our sins. The cup is a picture of the blood of Christ, which um, if you read in the Old Testament, every Every covenant that was made or every promise that was made was always sealed with the spilling of an animal's blood. And that was the seal of that promise. And we, the promise was um, affirmed, if you will, or, or given authority based upon the blood of the sacrifice that was made. So when we partake of this and we drink the, the juice that's presented to us, it is a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ that has sealed all of those who believe in him. And that's really what it's about. It's not meant to seal us any more than drinking anything can seal us, right? It's, it's a picture of what has already sealed us. And that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. The body is not, when Jesus says to his disciples, when he's taking the last supper with them, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. We must be mindful that Jesus Christ was standing right in front of them when he said that. So it was obviously not his body in a literal way, but it was his body in a spiritual way. It was his body in a figurative way. He's saying to them, this represents my body. And so when we take communion, we're, we're re reflecting on what Jesus Christ has done for us. But in communion itself, it's not the literal body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a, it is a picture. Okay, And so it'd be almost like if you were to hand somebody a picture of yourself and say, this is me. Well, is that really you? Is that, is that really you or is it just a picture of you? You might say to them, this is me, but when they look at it, they realize this is not flesh and blood, it's, it's a picture. So when we take communion, when the Lord says, this is me, what he's saying is, is this represents me. This is a reminder of me. And, and the scriptures tell us that in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, do this in remembrance. He says that on occasion, I think twice there in the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. So we're, we're doing this uh, communion as a reminder of what Christ did for us. And, and let, let me say this to you as well. That there's always a caution that if you let the reminder take the place of the actual, you minimize the actual event that actually accomplished the task because you have put the picture in its place. It's, it's Again, we go back to the whole picture scenario if you give somebody a picture and they decide, well, that's you, and they fall in love with that picture, and they're like, I don't really need you anymore because I got this picture, minimizes the actual, doesn't it? And we don't want to minimize the actual body and blood of Christ and the work that he accomplished 2,000 years ago to save us from our sins. We don't want to minimize that. We just want to remember it. And so that's what, the, that's what communion is about. I wanted to read out of 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, every, every month we try to look at a different passage just to kind of encourage us. 
And 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us of, of not taking the Lord's Supper, not taking communion lightly. When you take um, the Lord's Supper, it shouldn't be done in a fleshly way. In chapter number 11, there was a group of people, they were coming together and they were taking communion as if it was a, um, a big party, right? And it wasn't serious. And, and, and in chapter number 10, there were people taking the Lord's Supper who really hadn't committed their life to Christ. And they were living carnally. That's what 1 Corinthians is about. It's like carnal living. And so they were taking communion with carnal living, and the Lord was going to ultimately rebuke them for that and tell them, you know, don't be living carnally and taking the Lord's Supper because now you're making the Lord's Supper into nothing. And so let, let's just read in beginning in verse number six, it says, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolatrous as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose to play. And this is just a, a, a phrase, a, a, a type of speech that's meant to say that they, were, they, 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 they took communion and they rose up to play, but there really wasn't any seriousness to it. There really wasn't any reminder in it. They were just going through life, just kind of doing things. He goes on to say, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us, for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let everyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, flee from adultery. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... And we're getting ready to bless the cup here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, but we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat and sacrifice um, participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I simply, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is the, is the value of what we're, what we're remembering here, that it, be real, that it be real inside of us, that there be a real relationship with Christ, a, a true partaking, if you will, um, of the body and blood of Christ that takes place at salvation. In, in other words, when a person gets saved, they are partaking in a spiritual way of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And, and, and what he's saying is, is don't, don't, don't take communion 
and yet not be a partaker, truly a partaker of the body and blood of Christ, which, which is reflected by not being idolatrous and fornicating, or in other words, having purity in your life. And so I want to pray over the elements um, before we take of them, but I want to just encourage you. The Apostle Paul says in the next chapter, he says, examine yourself before you partake, because if you partake, if you partake and it's not true inside of you, then you partake upon yourself judgment. So there is a, there is a um, seriousness to what we're doing, but there's also a seriousness to the fact that is, is this real inside of me? Does this, is this, is this a um, product of what God has done inside of me, or do I look at it as a means for God to do something? And so I just want you to think about that and meditate on that as we pray over these elements and bless them, and then we will partake of them together. So please bow with me for a moment. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have to partake of that which represents your body, the sacrifice that you made for our sins. Lord, help us to never take that lightly. Not necessarily the representation, but the, the sacrifice that was made that is being represented. Lord, the reality that mankind is utterly sinful, that each one of us, including, our, including myself, is, is depraved, is, is, is really beyond cure outside of a miracle, that we have walked in darkness and lived according to our flesh. We have been lustful and prideful. We have, Lord, filled our path with the pleasures of this world. We are um, bitter and angry, and we murmur and complain. Lord, they're, they're really, and if we just unfolded the Ten Commandments, we would all have to say, guilty, Lord, we're guilty. But yet your sacrifice was a direct assuming of, the, of that guilt for us, and the payment for that guilt in our place we thank you for that. We thank you for the reminder of, the, of this sacrifice for our sins. We think of the cup as a reminder, Lord, of the covenant of grace, the covenant that you wrote to us about in the New Testament that says we don't need to work to earn your favor. There's nothing that we can do, Lord God, to earn your favor, but grace Grace upon grace, your word says, grace that is unmerited and undeserved, kindness and favor, patience and gentleness that we experience each day based upon the sacrifice of Christ for our sins and the indwelling righteousness of the Holy Spirit that is within us. I pray that you would make this a reality for all that are here this morning, that it would be received by faith and that you, Lord Jesus Christ, would be believed upon by faith and that we would refuse to pursue righteousness by our own works. Please bless this communion time. Please encourage our hearts by it. Those who are believers, Lord, please bless them, grow their faith in this moment. Those who are not believers, Lord, please establish faith within them. We'll give you the thanks and the praise for it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
We'll be in several passages of Scripture this morning. It'll be various uh, texts. Some I will quote and some will turn to. So just if you want to follow along, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen. This morning, my goal is, is to finish up the series that we've been walking through on I Don't Think It Means What You Think It Means. Um, the next couple of weeks, we'll be gone out of town and uh, for vac- family vacation. And then we'll, when we return, the Lord's will, we're going to jump into the book of 1 Corinthians. So you guys can be in prayer about that and uh, be praying for wisdom for me as I work through that text and then for us together as we work through it um, the next several months, maybe years, so you know how I can be. So um, it's always fresh and good because it's always the scriptures. We look forward to it. This morning I want to talk to you about the church and just a real practical look at what the church is and what the church is not based upon some maybe some misconceived ideas and uh, and just looking at some different scriptures in God's word to unfold the meaning of the church, the purpose of the church. There's so many different churches today, so many different denominations in our world that view church in in, in different ways, have different, would even, we could even go online and, and look up different definitions of the church and we would find a variety of differing definitions of the church from Uh, different scholars, uh, different belief systems, different denominations. And ultimately, our authority must come from the Word of God because it is truly our only source of authority. Uh, It is the only thing that we have that we would call objective, that we can look to and we can know that it it is the truth. It is the Word of God. It is uh, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we know that we can go to him and we can find truth. And then we look at John 1 and he's presented to us as the Word. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us. And so we look to the Word of God, and the Word of God is the foundation that we have to know that uh, what we're reading is true. It is, it is not called God's Word um, by mistake or by accident. It is God's Word. And when we look at like First Timothy, it says that the Word of God, that all Scripture is inspired. It means that God breathed it out, that all Scripture has been inspired by God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, um, so that the man of God may be, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good deed. And so the word of God is what we have, what God has given us, what God has left us with here in this generation that we can go to and we can know him and we can know about him and we can know how to serve him and we can know how to tell other people about him. That's what God's word has been given to us for. And so I want to just work through a few passages of Scripture. Ephesians 4 is where we're going to start, but only because Ephesians is a, really about the church. If you were to want a book of the Bible that dealt with the church in the most um, clear way, it would be the book of Ephesians. And so that's why we'll start there, and we'll read a text, and then we'll look at some different truths. If you like to take notes and you like... Uh, things just laid out in a very, very patternistic way, then get your pen ready because that's the way it's going to be this morning. Sometimes I'm like impossible to take notes when I preach, and then other times it's, it's easy. I think this morning will be the easy one. So if you like to take notes, then you're welcome to do that. Um, Ephesians 4 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes and says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called 
And again, he's speaking to the church here. The first three chapters have been purely doctrinal. Um, they've been instruction about who, who God is, who the church is, what God has done in order to get the church for himself, to purchase the church for himself, the, the idea of his electing and his choosing and his bringing into the, into the church world um, is the first three chapters. And then the fourth chapter, he says that he wants us to walk worthy um, to walk in such a way that is reflective of what we've been called to, right? So the, the calling in chapter number one and chapter number two of Ephesians is, is very well explained that those who are in the church have been called into it. They've been supernaturally called into it. It's a, it's a grace that God bestows on a certain people. And, and, and it's, a, it's completely of God's grace and of his mercy. It has nothing to do, I mean, the Lord doesn't look down from heaven and say, man, that guy is a really neat guy. I want him on my team. God looks down from heaven and he sees that we're all sinful and that none of us are deserving to be on his team. None of us can merit a, a position on God's team or in God's economy. But yet God in his grace reaches down from heaven and, and brings salvation to a group of people. And that, that group of people, think about this, it's not, it's not, it's not the, the why God saves us does not look at the past behind our salvation because there is no answer other than his grace, Right? But the why God saves us looking future is applicable because God saves us for a reason. And that's where, if you think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast, right? Do we stop there? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto, unto good works. So we have been saved, we have been birthed into the family of God for what reason? Not because we are worthy beforehand, but because we are unworthy, but so that we can be a reflection afterwards of his good works in us. And that's what he says here. Walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Walk worthy of your election. Walk worthy of God's grace. Let me give you another uh, verse that I think is appropriate. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, the, the apostle Paul says this, I am what I am by the grace of God. Amen? God's grace has made me who I am. That's salvation. But he says this, but his grace towards me was not in vain because I labored more than anyone else. So the Apostle Paul doesn't just rest in this grace and say, well, there's no reason to labor. He, he builds on this grace and he works very, very hard for the glory of God so that the grace that he has been given would not be empty or vain. And that's what vain means. It means empty. It means it has no fruit. But then the Apostle Paul concludes with this, that it was the grace of God that was working through him. So in other words, God saved the Apostle Paul by his grace. The Apostle Paul takes that grace and puts it into his work, and he works hard and labors hard and ministers hard, right? But then he says that the work that I did really, really hard, the sweat that I had that was pouring down my face serving the Lord, it was the grace of God in me. 
So what the apostle Paul knew was that there was nothing that he could do in his own strength outside of the grace of God. But what he also knew was the grace of God was not only sufficient to save him, but the grace of God was sufficient to be lived through him. So he says, walk worthy. Walk in such a way that reflects that you have been chosen by God for a purpose. Not a purpose that goes behind your salvation, but a purpose that goes in front of your salvation. He says this. I mean, this is going to get real practical here, so you just need to listen because it's really good. It's really helpful. What does this look like to walk worthy of what we've been called to? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. We love those things, don't we, church? And that identifies us, right? Those are the things that we, we you know, we're marked by those things. I, I, I don't know that I would agree with that. I don't know that if we asked the word to describe the church today, if these would be the words that they would come up with. But that's what he says walking worthy is. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Let me say that one again. Eager. Eager. You ever been eager about something? You've seen your kids eager about things, right? We're going on vacation on Tuesday. We're going to be gone for two weeks. And we're eager about it. And we're excited about it. We're ready to go. We, we are looking forward to the time of refreshing and the time of relaxation and the family time that we're going to get to spend together. We're eager about it. Here's what the Apostle Paul says is that the church ought to be eager about unity. Right? Eager about unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In case you didn't get it, there is one. (laughs) This one. We're one body, not many. He goes on to say, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And we could just say there, honestly, it's not really referring to mature manhood as a a humanistic thing, but it's referring to mature manhood in a Christian sense. And the expectation is not that the world is going to be unified, but the expectation is is that Christians are going to be unified, that Christians are going to be mature. He goes on to say, 
He gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All these things that they're describing are the purpose of the church, so that the, so that the people sitting in the pews may not be, be blown by everything that goes on in the world. Uh, Ron said it well this morning in worship, with, why do we, as Christians, knowing that God is sovereign, why are we... Why are we so out of control when things are, are difficult in the Christian life. This is the same thing. The church is meant to stabilize us so that when the wind blows, we don't blow with it. The church is not meant to be blown by the wind. Matter of fact, the world ought to look, when the wind blows really hard, the, lo- the world ought to be able to look and find one group of people that's unmoved by it. The last year, the wind blew really hard, didn't it? And the question is, where did we stand? Where did we stand as a church? Where did we stand as individuals when the wind of COVID blew? Where did we stand? Or the question is, is did we stand? To what he says here, the church is meant to be a, a stabilizing place where we can come, and listen, the church has to be a stabilizing place where people can come and be stabilized. And that, that's, there, there are several other things that we're going to look at this morning in regards to the church that helps that take place. The church cannot be infiltrated by instability. The church cannot be, inst- cannot be infiltrated by unstable people. The Lord is clear on that in, in when he deals with church discipline is that you allow instability into the church, then you will ultimately end up destroying the church's stability, which is the very basis for which the church functions. The church is to be a stable place, and we should be in agreement with that. He goes on. I know I'm stopping. You guys are like, this is going to be a long sermon. (laughs) I hope not. He says, um, rather speak the truth or speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in every way unto him who is the head Christ. We may grow into Christ. We may grow into Christ's likeness. In other words, what he's saying here is this. The church's purpose or one of the church's purposes is that you would grow into your knowledge of the fact that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. That you are now a reflection. Your life is now a reflection of Christ. And you know something, folks? It takes a growing into that, doesn't it? It takes a maturing in the Christian faith to know that that's where I'm at. You know, when, when Jesus suffers, he calls us in Peter, he says, when Jesus suffered to be an example for us so that we might know how to suffer, right? When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he was mocked and laughed at and spit upon, he did not defend himself. When they lied about him, he did not rise up and say, you're wrong. And we look at that and listen, we have to grow into that, don't we? It's true, isn't it? I wouldn't say that I know anybody And I know a lot of people in the Christian faith, I don't know anybody that's arrived at that. 
but we ought to be a people that's pursuing it. That we might grow into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In other words, when the body is functioning well, and it's not talking about our physical bodies, it's talking about our spiritual bodies. It's talking about the church as a spiritual body. When the body is functioning right, it will become stronger. It will become stronger. It will strengthen, it says it will strengthen itself. It's almost like if your body ever gets sick, but your body is strong, you're a healthy person, but you get sick, your body is made to do what? It's made to do what? It's made to heal itself, isn't it? God made it that way. When it's unhealthy, it often won't heal itself, but when it's healthy, it will heal itself. When the body of Christ is healthy and it faces sickness, which it does, it will, it will heal itself. It will become stronger. So with that passage of Scripture being read, I want to just give you some things this morning to think about. First, it's two thoughts with lots of subpoints. so don't get all excited about the two thoughts because there's going to be some sub-things I want to just deal with. Real quick, give you some other scriptures to kind of embrace. But first of all, what is the church not? What the church is not? And, and um, I just want to look at a few things because I think that there is a, maybe a confusion about uh, what the church isn't. And obviously in modern culture, there are, again, several different definitions that, are, that embrace certain ideas about the church that are, that are not accurate so I want to unfold those first, and then we'll get into um, several things that the church is. Number one, the church is not a place. Okay, the church is not a place. It's not a special place, and it's not a specific place. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there is no reference to the church being in a certain place. There's no emphasis put on the place that the church is meeting. In the New Testament, you have outdoor churches, you have home churches, you have churches that are in the public square, you have churches that are in the synagogues or in buildings that would be kind of fitting to where we're at today. But the church is never, is never emphasized in such a way that where it is meeting, is, is, it matters. Now, we met on the side of the building here for about a, I think it was about a year, right? About a year over there? Maybe it just felt like a year, but it was a year, I think, over there that we met on the side, and we were the church, weren't we? It didn't matter if we were in the building or out of the building. We were still the church because the church is not about a place. Uh, again, you see a lot of things taking place in the New Testament. The first church, the church at Pentecost, the, the revival that takes place in Acts chapter number 2 was an out, outdoor event. The church was 3,000 people were saved and Apostle Peter was preaching the gospel and we see this throughout. We see churches in homes. We see churches, again, in public square. We see uh, the Apostle Paul going into the synagogue and preaching in the church or in the synagogue. So buildings were, um, were not unnecessary, but nor were they necessary for the church to function. So it's not a place. It's not a special place or a specific place. And the danger is, is if you put too much emphasis on the place of the church, what people do is they compartmentalize it that I'm at the church or I'm in the church when I'm in that place, right? So when you guys leave today, are you going to be leaving the church? The answer for most of us would be yes. The biblical answer is no. You're not leaving the church. You're still a part of the church as you leave. It's not about where you're at. It's about being a part of the church. 
Remember this, though. While the church is not a place, the church is a gathering. The, the, uh, the Greek word that we used or that's translated church in the New Testament is ekklesia, and the word simply means the gathering of those who have been called out. It's a group that has been separated out, and now they're gathered back together. So we do need to be gathered together to be the church. It is implied in the term that is used in the New Testament to describe the church. It doesn't have to be at a special place, but there has to be a gathering of believers. The Lord says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. There has to be a gathering. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why do we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together? Because that is the church. It's the gathered group of believers. A home church can be a church. Why? Because you have a a gathered group of believers. It it must be a gathering or a a called-out assembly. That is the church. But the church is not. We're talking about what it is not. The church is not a specific place, and it's not a special place. It's not a location, if you will. And we don't, again, just the principle is a lot of times what you want to do is you want to take the Old Testament temple or tabernacle and bring it into the New Testament, and all of a sudden you have a building that is the church. And, and unfortunately, what you bring with that is guess what else they did in the Old Testament? They worked their way into God's favor, quote unquote, right? When the New Testament under Christ, we know that none of those things are true. The building isn't special, and you can't work your way into God's favor. So it's not a place, it's not a special place or a specific place. Number two, it's not a social club. It's not a place where people come together to meet, to make business contacts. I remember many years ago, I went to a church to pastor. It was in Nebraska. It was the last church that I pastored. And uh, a person came to me probably within the first few months of, of me being the pastor there. And his comment was, man, I really enjoy the church here because I make most of my business contacts here. I was like, okay, you know, it's kind of like you're new there. You don't know what to say. You're just like, amen, brother. And you just kind of go on and, and you just kind of live, you know, you don't really deal with it at that point. It's like a little trepidation going on. So um, that's not what the church is for. The church is not a social club where people come together to, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? To become better, to network is a good word. Yeah, the, thank you, Kevin. To network, to 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 better better our own uh, our own situation, our own circumstances. That's a danger of the church. That's how the church gets infiltrated with unhealthy people and becomes an unhealthy place. You remember in the Bible, the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was here on the earth, he turns tables over in the tabernacle, right? And what does he say to them? They turn the the house of God, or the, they turn the house of prayer into a what? Into a, I heard a lot of answers, but I think they all were the same. Into a place of merchandise, a place of selling. So that was a marketing, a marketing place for them. And he rebukes them for that because that's not what the church is meant to be. Listen to me, the church is not to be a place of self-centeredness. The church is not about you, right? Okay, can I get an amen on that? Church is not about you. Church is not about me. Church is about Jesus. That's what it's about. 
And we've got to get a hold of that. The church is about Jesus. So we don't come to church to get some... The the reason why, listen to me, folks, the reason why a lot of people don't come to church is because the church is a self-centered place for them. And when they don't feel like they're getting that self-centered satisfaction, guess what they don't do? They don't come. When Jesus is the center of church, you go. Because you're there to worship him. You're there to honor him for who he is and for what he has done, and you're there to be amongst his people. The church is not a social club. It's not a place to make business contacts, not a place to be self-centered or man-centered. However, church is a place of socializing. Okay? Don't miss that. People go from one ditch to the other ditch. These are your best friends. I want to play games and hang out with these people sitting here right in front of me. I want to know you at a whole different level. That is the church. God looks down from heaven and sees his people gathered together, enjoying each other's fellowship, and that is pleasant to him. Matter of fact, in Acts 2, when the church, when there was 3,000 people saved, guess what they started doing? They started meeting from house to house and breaking. They started eating together and hanging out together talking about the things of God. The church is not a social club, but it does include socialization. We must keep it in the proper order. It's not the purpose of it, but man, it's sure a part of it, isn't it? Number three, and this one might be a challenge for you, but I just want you to consider it with me and think about it for a moment. The church is not a place for the lost. Okay? The church is not meant for the lost. The church is a place, you look at Ephesians 4, we just read it a minute ago, it's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You have no place in that, state, in, that in those three principles, you have no place for the, for the lost in the church. The church is not a place, listen, the self-seeking world, the, the, what, what, what we call, what, what do we call it, um, Seeker-sensitive church is structured in such a way as to become entertaining to the world so that lost people can come in and feel like they fit. And guess what the church feels like? If the church is structured so that lost people can come in and fit in, what what do the believers feel like? They don't fit in, do they? It's so weird. So I was a youth pastor for several years before I became a a teaching pastor, and I, I learned this as a youth pastor. There are a thousand things that the world is offering their kids for pleasure and enjoyment, and there were zero things that, that the church was offering their kids for pleasure and, employment, and enjoyment. And what I found was this. It's no wonder that the church's kids are going out into the world to find pleasure and enjoyment because we try to entertain the world, the world entertains the world, and the church kids get nothing. Do you know what I decided as a youth pastor? I am going to minister to the church kids. I'm going to create a ministry that the church kids can come in and they can have a blast. And it's totally focused on them enjoying each other and having fun together. That's what the church is for. Listen, the world has a thousand things. They don't need the church to entertain them. What we need is we need some church people to enjoy each other's fellowship and to have something that's set up so that We can enjoy things in this life. We've got enough things that are attacking us. We need to go to a place where we can smile, right? It's fun to be here. I tell you something, it's not fun 
for a, for a person who is devoted to Christ to go to a church where everything is built around trying to entertain the lost. It's just not. So what the church does is the church bees the church. The church is not a place for entertainment of the lost. It's not a place, as, as some scholars said, it's not a place for us to entertain goats. It's a place for the gathering of sheep. It is meant for the converted. The programs are meant for the converted. The, 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 the practices are meant for those who are believers. The church was a place for the church was a place for believers to go to be equipped and to be encouraged so that they could face the world. There's a problem with that when the church becomes the world. However, just like I did in the other two, lost are welcome in the church. Right? We do not push lost people out of the church. But I tell you something, we must be careful not to make the church's structure based around lost people. We invite them in. We want to preach the gospel to them. We want them to know that Jesus Christ has a plan to, to, to deal with their sinfulness. We want them to know that, don't we? We love to present the gospel to the lost, but the church is not meant to be structured to entertain them. Matter of fact, if somebody comes to the church for a long season that is lost and doesn't get some sense of, un, of discomfort, there's something wrong with the church. They ought to feel uncomfortable because their sins should be being called out. Amen? Got some quieter amens on that one. <laughs> Listen, folks, I'm just telling you the truth. I know these things are not politically correct, but you just, we need to know these things. We've gotten so far off track, it's like it's going to be difficult to get back on track, but the only way to do it is to start working our way in that direction. So we love lost people. We invite them to church and we encourage them to come. But that's not the purpose and the structure and the reason for the programs that we put together. We don't get our group up here that, that leads in worship and say, hey, how worldly can we be to make the world come in and feel like they, they really can enjoy this? Listen, if, that, if what they do is worship, and I think it is. You guys, is it worship, you guys? Can the lost enjoy it? Can lost people worship? Is it not implied that they have to be indwelt by the Spirit of God to worship? It was weird. I went to a, or I heard of a concert once. They had a big concert with all these groups, and, and they were just talking about, at the beginning, they were just talking about how amazingly worshipful it was. And everybody was, you know, you, you know what, the, what people call worship today. It was, you know, everybody was getting kind of... Uh, excited and things like that and and it was weird because at the end like three-fourths of the three fourths of the crowd got saved it's like there there's something missing i'm glad that they got saved but there wasn't worship taking place at the beginning because worship implies that you have to be indwelt by the spirit of god you can't worship without god's spirit and the church is not made to be a place that 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 is entertaining to the lost that is trying to make a place where they feel comfortable and welcome. It's a place, it's a place where, the, where the saves are meant, saved are meant to feel comfortable and welcome. There's enough places that I don't feel comfortable and welcome in the world. Amen? I should sure hope I can go to church and feel comfortable and welcome. 
It's not a place. Let me go back and see what I wrote. It's not a place for the unsaved. I get lost sometimes in my notes. The last thing is what it's not, is it's not a place to come and get your, get your spiritual fix. It's not a place to come and get your spiritual fix. Listen to me, folks. This is not a place that sh- we come together on Sundays to worship the Lord as a congregation, but it should not be our only worship to the Lord. And matter of fact, it should not be, it should not be different from our, outside of the fact that we're with brothers and sisters in Christ, it should not be different from the outpouring of our heart to the Lord all week. Some of the best, and I'm going to just say this, and it's not, it's not a 100% accurate statement, so take it, it's, it's a gray statement, all right? It's in the middle. But some of the greatest worshipers on Sunday morning are the most burdened down people throughout the rest of the week. And they come for the fix of Sunday morning service, but that's not what it's meant to be. The church is not meant to be a place that you get a fix. It's a place that you come to worship the Lord with, Lord with your brothers and sisters in Christ as, a, as an outpouring of what you've experienced all throughout the whole week. And we talked about worship and that was what it was. So that is what it's not. Uh, I told you it would be pretty well laid out. And in regard to back to getting us, us fixed, the church is not a place that's meant to help you compartmentalize your life. Okay, It's not a place that's meant for that. What is the church? Let me give you a few things here. Number one, the church is, in a, is a gathered people whose foundation is Jesus Christ. The church is a gathered people whose foundation is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 and verse 11, the Bible says, There is no foundation that is laid other than this foundation, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. He is, he is everything to the church. And when a gathered group of people come together, a group of people come together with Christ as the center and Christ as the foundation, that is considered the church. That is considered the church. People gathered for the, for the praise of Christ and the praise of Christ alone. So it is a gathering, number one, whose people Who's a, a, a gathered people whose foundation is Jesus Christ. Matthew, I'm going to turn to Matthew 16 if you want to join me there. The, um, really the first mention of the New Testament church is in this passage where we start to see a transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament church is right here in Matthew 16. And he says this in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, uh, Christ has just asked Simon Peter a question. Simon Peter is going to reply. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what rock is the church going to be built on? He's not referring to the rock of Peter being the foundation of the church. He's referring to the rock of Peter's statement. What is Peter's statement? Well, Peter's statement is the gospel that Jesus Christ is God. You are the son of God. That is the gospel. That is the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is that God himself became a man 
took upon himself human form. He took, his, he took our sins on himself. He died in our place, and he resurrected the third day. That is the gospel, and that is the foundation of the church. And when a gathered people come together on the basis of Christ being central, his death, burial, and resurrection in the gospel, that is the church. Just goes to tell you that just because certain people meet in a building doesn't make them the church, does it? Just because the name on the sign says such and such a church doesn't make them the church, does it? What makes them a church is when they're gathered together and Christ is central. And the gospel. The church is a gathered people whose foundation is Jesus Christ. Number two, the church is a gathered people who are special, separate, and assembled. When I say special, if you'll look at Acts 20, Acts chapter number 20, in verse 28, the Bible says this. You're maybe familiar with this verse of Scripture. The Bible says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to care for the church of God, which, which has been obtained or which was purchased by his own blood. This is a very special group. The church is a very special group to God. It is a special people. The Bible tells us in, in um, 1 Peter chapter number 2 that we're a, a holy people, a, a sacred people, a, a set-apart people. He says, you're a very special people for me. In other words, the church is a set-aside group of people who have been set aside by God for God. That's what we are. We're different from the world. We're separate from the world. We think differently from the world. We're a separate people on purpose. It's not an accident. We've been set apart on purpose so that we can be God's people. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17 and 18, and, and even the verses before, it talks about come out from among them and be ye separate, and do not touch that which is unclean, and I will be your father, and you will be my people. The church is a set-apart group of people. We're meant to be different. We're meant to be unique. It's not an accident that we're that way. We're special to God. We're different, and then we're assembled. I mentioned that to you earlier. We're unique pieces gathered to portray the Godhead. Perfect unity among different persons. Unique in every way, yet united in every way. This is a group of people this morning that are unique. We're all unique, aren't we? Amen? I knew I'd get something out of it. We're unique people. But what makes us the church is we're unique and we're united by the Spirit of God. You go back to Ephesians 4. He says that we are to be passionate about being united in the Spirit. We're united by the Spirit of God. And we're unified then by the spiritual gifts that the Spirit of God gives us. That's verse 13 through 16 of Ephesians 4. That's 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, and it's Romans 12. God gives us gifts so that we might even be more unified. The Scriptures refer to these spiritual gifts as being like, like joints, if you will. 
The joints are you take two bones and you bring them together and you put a joint there and the joint holds them together and causes them to function properly. Together, even though they're different. That's what the spiritual gifts do. The church is a gathered people that are special, separate, and assembled. Number next. That's my numbering system. I need to just put numbers by my points and I can get numbers out of my head. Next, a gathered people with an orderly structure. It's a gathered people with an orderly structure. It's not just any gathered people, but the Bible says the church ought to have pastors, ought to have elders, ought to have deacons. There ought to be a structure there in place. Why is it important that there be a structure for it to be a church? Because even in the, even, listen, even in the church homes, the home, what we would call home churches in the Bible, there was this structure. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the last verse, he says, let everything be done decently and in order. Why is it important that the church be decent and in order? What are we reflecting? We're reflecting on God, right? And how, how many of us would describe God as decent and in order? We would all describe God as decent and in order. So the church is meant to be decently and in order because it's a reflection of God. So he sets up a structure of men and and women leading or, or working in the church, working out the Lord's structure for the Lord's glory. It's a gathered people who have an orderly structure. Next. It's a gathered people who represent God's way. 1 Timothy 3 and verse number 15, the Bible says that the church is the pillar and the ground or the buttress of the truth. In other words, the church is that which, it's a group of people that are meant to be a display of God's way. Okay? We know that God is a trinity. It's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together in perfect harmony, all extremely very unique, right? You can't read your Bible without seeing the uniqueness of the Trinity, but also seeing the unity of the Trinity. That is what the church is meant to reflect. We're to hold the the truth in the Bible that says God is a Trinity, three distinct persons working as one person. We're meant to bolster that truth. It's not mean that we're meant to tell people that truth, which we are, but we're meant to show people that truth by there being a hundred people working as if they were one person. That is what it means to bolster the truth. The church, listen to this, the church is meant to to give God's way a viewing The church is meant to give God's way of viewing. Listen, if you're a Christian marriage, you are meant to give God's way of marriage a viewing. The world says God's way of marriage stinks. But I tell you something, they're wrong. And the only way that we can show them that they're wrong is not by, we, we love to tell them that they're wrong, right? The only way that we can convince the world that they're wrong is exactly what Daniel did with his three friends. He said this, King, let us eat our God's diet and show you that his diet is better. That's how you show the world that God's way is better and the church is the place through which it can be done. The church is meant to say to the world, let me show you God's way and you decide if you like it or not. 
The way we raise our kids as Christians is saying to the world, listen, we have a different way of raising kids as Christians, don't, don't we? We have a different way of treating our wife as Christians. We have a different way of treating our husbands as Christians, and we want the world to see it so they can decide if they like it or not. I will say to you folks, the problem with most of us as Christians is we have embraced so much of the world's philosophy that God's way doesn't get a viewing anymore. Lord, help us. His way can only be viewed through the church. It's not just in the areas that I've mentioned, but you could go to finances, you could go to work ethic, relationships, how you deal with temptation, how you deal with addiction. God has a different way, folks, and the church is meant to manifest that. Next, it is a gathered people who are accountable and pure. The church is a place for purity. It's not a place for perfect people, but it is a place for pure people. It's a place where people are pursuing purity and they are repentant when they don't live it out. Folks, listen to me. 1 Corinthians 5 and Matthew 18 are both passages of Scripture about church discipline. Why do you have church discipline? Because the church is meant to be a pure place. Otherwise, there would be no need for church discipline at all. God gives us church discipline because when the church gets out of sorts, he wants it to be dealt with because it's a reflection of him. The church is a group of people who are accountable and pursuing purity. We are sinful people who love repentance. No blatant sin or unrepentant sin is allowed. That is why there's church discipline. Again, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. We don't have time to cover these, but you can cover them in your own time. Next. It is a gathered people who remember through ordinances. We did one ordinance this morning, communion. We'll do another ordinance at some point called baptism. Two ordinances given to the New Testament church so that the church can come together and remember what Christ Jesus has done. In baptism, we're remembering ceremonially the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a personal testimony of our salvation and our being a follower of Christ. The first step, the Bible says in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, that the first step after a person becoming a follower of Jesus is that they be baptized. That they, they put themselves in a position where they are, they are reflecting to the people around them that they are now followers of Christ. I would encourage you if you're here and you're a follower of Christ this morning and you've never been baptized, that you would consider that. It's important. It's a reflection of Christ and his church. And then communion, we took communion this morning. Communion is a ceremonial reminder of Christ's death and also a reminder of his covenant of grace. Next, it's a gathered people who are maturing through discipleship. It's a place where we're growing, we're learning, we're becoming mature in Christ through the teaching of God's word, through the worship music, through all of those things. We are becoming mature in Christ so that we might know him better, we might learn to... Listen, I, I would say this, three things that God has taught me in the last six months more than ever before is that my study of God's word is threefold purpose, and it's in this distinct order. Number one is that I might know him. If you study God's word for, for point two or three without point one, then you're missing the boat. We come to church, we study God's word, number one, so that we might know him. Number two, so that we might obey him. We might serve him. He's God, amen? Once you know that he's God, then you know that you're supposed to serve him. 
Number three, that you might tell others about him. Get it in the right order. Because a lot of people study God so that they might tell other people about him, but they miss the fact that they're supposed to be living for him. And many of them don't even know him. Maturing through learning, practice, and discipleship. Next, a church is a gathered people who are fellowshipping, encouraging, stabilizing, helping, strengthening each other, uplifting each other, holding each other up, praying for each other, a number of different things. Galatians 6 and 1, bear ye, another, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, to stir one another up to love and to good works by not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. The church is a place for fellowship. It is a family. We pray together, we eat together, we play together, we study together, we do life together. The church is not a segment of your life, folks. It is your life. I know that's hard to get, but that's the reality. The church is not a segment. If the church is a group of people gathering together, at some level, with Christ as the center, is that not all of our lives? Lastly, the church is a gathered people for protection and power. The church definitely provides perfect protection. It provides defense from enemies, a defense from temptation, a defense from sin, a defense from doubt and worry and frustration. The church is a great place. A lot of people tell me, you know, when I go to church on Sunday, I just feel all my worries are lifted, but by Saturday, they're all back again. Church is a great place to to be on the defense, doesn't it? It helps us to be defensive. But let me say this to you. The church is offensive as well. The church is a powerful, powerful place where God's people unite and they move things forward. Matthew 16, verse 18, I read it to you earlier. It says, um, I'm going to turn there because I'm, I'm going to forget it. Matthew 16, 18 says, um, the Bible says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's implying forward motion. The church is not just about defensive. The church is about moving forward. It's about taking back ground that the devil has stolen from us. It's about redefining words that the devil has tried to redefine to distort the word of God. The church is an aggressive, forward-moving organism. It is not always defensive. It is a powerful assembly of God's people who are indwelt by the Spirit, in love with his Son, and devoted to his glory. I'm closing with this last statement. I hope this has been helpful to you this morning. The church is a gathered people through which the power of the Spirit is put on display for the exaltation of the Son, Jesus Christ, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for, for making us a part through your redemptive work, making us a part of your family, making us a part of your church. And we just pray this morning that you will... Uh, shed light on, on what you meant mean to accomplish by gathering us. Help us to live for you each day of our lives, and we'll give you the thanks for it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.